You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Marty Horowitz, MD, is a professor of psychiatry at University of California, San Francisco, as well as director of the Center on Stress and Personality at the Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute. His first book is A Course in Happiness. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Horowitz. You're welcome. Want you start this book out with your experiences, and in particular, some time you spent in uh, Alaska uh, that helped you find clarity. I think clarity is one of the main themes of this book. It is. Uh, seeing the world as it is with a kind of lucid lens and clear ears starts you on the path. Now, um, you have a, some, some interesting kind of structures for us to, to approach a path to happiness. And one of them is are the three I's, integration, intimacy, and integrity. Um, let's start with the first one, integration. Could you tell me what you mean by integration? Well, Integration is the difficult and usually lifelong task of trying to put oneself into a kind of harmonious organization. We're composed of many parts of ourself, and they're not necessarily born to be in harmony. Now, you talk about three levels of integration. Could you explain what each of those levels are and maybe where you find most people? Well, a hard thing uh, in the field of psychiatry and psychology, and even in literature, is to define what a normal person is. <laughs> That's certainly true. And uh, a normal person is not necessarily a person who's reached a high level of integration of their self. They're usually a, a person, however, that can recognize that they may have uh, contradictory urges and contradictory ideas, and they can accept that about themselves. That is, they know it. Now, now, could you talk about um, people who, whose level of uh, integration is what you call discordant? What kind of person is that, and where can they go? A, a person who's discordant may have uh, explosive changes in their mental state, and they may have very choppy and seemingly explosive changes in their relatedness to others because they may all of a sudden shift from one view of who they are and how they articulate with the world to some other quite different one, even from good to bad, or bad to good, for that matter. Now, um, people who are discordant, the, the, the next level up is what you call conflicted. And, and you talk about something that I find really interesting, because I know a lot of people who have experienced this, is repeated relationship patterns. What are those, and, and how do we identify them? Well, most of us, uh, especially as we hit around 30, are still at a conflicted level. In fact, some people go through life at a conflicted level. And uh, by a conflicted level, I mean that they haven't uh, articulated different views of relationships. So what uh, I refer to repeatedly in the book is repetition, the repetition of a maladaptive interpersonal pattern. People often talk about themselves shooting themselves in the foot again, or there I went again, or there I'm about to go again. And uh, by 
uh, raising that intuition that I, I, I'm beginning to see I have this pattern, I'm beginning to see that I don't want to continue it, but I don't see how to stop it, uh, by raising that intuition into lucid thinking about it in a very calm and not too critical state of mind, then the person can begin to reduce the impact of their conflicts on their degree of satisfaction in life. So uh, A Course in Happiness deals with uh, 10 lessons that seek to accomplish that aim. Now, one thing that really interests me about this book, A, a Course in Happiness, is that it takes happiness seriously. I mean, it, 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 happiness used to be, I think, more, I guess, elusive or, or um, not really seen by, by psychology, psychiatry as, uh, you know, a, a state. Could you talk about that change? Has that happened recently or am I? No, I think you're quite right that for the past 20 years, there has been a whole movement in scientific psychology called positive psychology. And in it, people have learned to try and find the things that can facilitate not only, let's say, reduced anxiety and depression, reduced fear, shame, and guilt, but how can people increase uh, self-esteem, satisfaction, um, a sense of grace, a sense of compassionate being with other people. These are perennial themes. I mean, they go back as far as chants and rituals and then recorded history, uh, uh, the reduction of suffering, the establishment of peace and compassion, kindness in the world. Um, but the scientific study of uh, the mental processes that are involved has been happening really in the last hundred years. Now, um, one of the things I think that's really key to your whole um, course of happiness is getting a, a clear, calm picture uh, of yourself. And, and you could, so could you talk about, um, one of the things you talk about are the three ways to describe yourself, ideal, derogatory, and realistic. Could you expand on that for me? Yes, that's, um, I use that message that method in several different lessons in A Course in Happiness because um, in the course of understanding how people change towards more happiness in psychotherapy, for example, uh, in order to have a, a kind of calm, lucid re-examination of things that are often fraught with negative feelings, uh, it helps to raise the attitude uh, to a, a clear statement and to compare and contrast the statements. So, for example, uh, taking uh, even a view of self um, and say, well, what's the most catastrophic aspect of that particular negative, dark, clouded view of yourself? Well, I'm a total failure, and I'll never amount to anything, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to work, but I'll procrastinate, and, and so I'm, I'm just worthless, basically. Now, that's uh, unrealistic, and it it's clearly unrealistic when a person is then asked for the evidence of this total catastrophic view of self. But I don't think it's good to stop there, of course. So I say, well, that, that's a nice fantasy to get rid of, but let's talk about a nice fantasy that's really totally fantastic, idealistic. What's, what, what's uh, a glorious view of yourself? Well, I'm uh, creative, I'm talented, I'm handsome, I'm uh, sexually irresistible. Um, 
and uh, probably am immortal also and immune to germs. Well, that's a terrific fantasy. Now, in between those two extremes, where would you th say things might actually be? And by, by um, kind of casting these extremes, even into a, a kind of humorous light, uh, just to show that they are extremes, then it helps people say what's very difficult for people to say, which is, what do they want? What do they think about their desires in terms of what's realistic pos realistically possible to make plans to get there step by step? One of the things that, that you, you also talk about um, is this uh, tools for self-examination. And how, could you talk about preparing for a calm contemplation where you're aware of your feelings, but not they don't distract you? One has to learn how to learn. So the learning from the kind of exercises I go through in a course in happiness include not only finding out what to learn and what to unlearn, but how to do that. And part of that is developing skills at self-observation. And those skills are often best done uh, in a state of solitude, not necessarily hours and hours of um, hibernating in a cave or something, but taking 10 minutes or 20 minutes, uh, turning off the cell phone, avoiding distractions, but most important of all, developing a mental set for what one's going to do, which is just think it through, like give, it, give a, a given topic that one's decided to think about, a period of time which is devoid of um, a, a set of uh, toxic enders, things that short-circuit useful thinking, like um, righteous indignation. I'm entitled to be X, Y, Z. And it's unjust that I'm not. Well, that, that stops a useful train of thought right there. And the other one is usually uh, harsh self-judgment. I've always made this mistake. I'll always make it. Um, I'm hopeless. Well, one of the things I really liked about uh, this book was your, your uh, idea of turning off the inner critic with, with awe. Could, could you explain that? That's a really great idea, I think, and, and it seems very like a, a workable way for us to approach things. Well, um, part of the um, thing that's always helped me in my life has been curiosity and attention to just interesting detail, the way the light falls on a leaf, uh, the way you can see uh, paper curl up in the puddle of a roadside. That is, if you, if you can remember as a child how you felt wonderment and just how things worked. Water comes out of a spigot if you turn the, the handle. You know, it's amazing. And if you, if you can take that attitude towards your own mind, even when it's having weird, bad thoughts, isn't that amazing that the mind could come up with that weird, bad thought? Then uh, you're turning off some of the, uh, the harsh criticism that's uh, debilitating to self-esteem, and you're just saying, oh, so the mind can do that. When you're caught up in some of these weird, bad thoughts, you talk about um, righteous indignation and, and self-pity, your inner sense is that those are true. How do you disconnect from the, those kind of feelings from the truth when, when you're in the grip of them? Well, truth is uh, a variable thing. The, the best truth is that which we can agree on, but we also agree on a lot of illusions. 
so it, it's an important distinction in kind of expanding the mind on these things to think about uh, psychological reality. Uh, the thoughts are there, and that's a psychological reality. It doesn't mean they have to be there all the time, as maybe an eternal truth or verity would suggest. It's, uh, it's a real feeling, and it can go away. And it can be endured for a time, even if it's painful. And it's not likely to be entirely permanent if one uh, takes certain actions against it. So that it's not that one can dismiss certain thoughts as being untrue, but one can re-examine them to see, well, in what state of mind are they relatively true? Taking a relativistic approach, what might be more true than this true? Uh, and then one gets into uh, one of the other important topics of the three eyes, which is uh, integrity, which deals with how to sort out one's values so that one has kind of a priority of what good thing is better than what other good thing. You have in this book a number of exercises and, and some nice, you know, uh, toolkits, mental toolkits for us to approach happiness. Could you talk about developing these in the in your practice and writing them down and turning them into a book? I mean, it, when we see the book, it's a fait accompli. It's it seems perfect, like it was always there, and it's like you just etched it out of the out of the pages, <laughs> and, and what was left over was the perfect book. But it must have been very difficult to come up with this. Well, that's why I didn't write it when I was young, <laughs> as much as I would have liked to. But I've written uh, 17 books for professional audiences, most of them centered around how people change in the course of psychotherapy. And that's been my, uh, my research, my clinical, and my teaching interest. And I teach a range of people from medical students, psychiatric residents, psychologists, so, uh, tr psychoanalysts in training. And I've always tried to uh, create a, a lucid statement, um, not only about what might cause a problem, but how do you recover from the problems? So a course in happiness really takes an approach on happiness that is stress mastery. And my field has been how do how do you get over a trauma? So uh, by understanding both the conscious and unconscious mental processes, and how to affect some of the unconscious intuitions that we have by conscious contemplation, I've, I've taken the lessons that my patients changing for the better have taught me and tried to put it into as, as clear and interesting a prose, which I hope uh, comes across to the reader. And I, that's why I've put in so many stories just to say, well, could, could you maybe change like this person does in the story that I have? One of the things that, that I think uh, is interesting is this idea of um, maturity and immaturity. That's, again, that's something, again, almost like happiness that, that isn't often, I think, uh, addressed in, in books like this. And, and you address it directly when you talk about the, the way each of them uh, greets the future. Well, the... The place that change is going to take place is in the next bit of the future. That is, uh, we, we are creatures that live by what we've been taught and the habit patterns we've developed for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, if we're going to use our minds, our conscious minds, as a wonderfully evolved evolutionary tool, what those tools do is they make us more effective in terms of plans we make right now and plans that we can rehearse and repeat 
and that can change the future. So I, I'm kind of like um, very much pro what our forefathers said about founding the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, it's okay to pursue happiness, and uh, it doesn't mean you're going to get there, but you need to set your sights forward and consider some of the satisfactions you ought to be striving for. And the book then tries to deal with some of the obstacles, some of the many obstacles that each of us tend to put in the way of our own striving. You have a number of exercises in the book. And could you talk about developing these exercises um, and maybe pick one, describe it to us, and tell us how you developed it over the course of of years of uh, therapy and practice? Well, we already mentioned one, which was the three scenarios Mm -hmm. method. I think I uh, probably got that from my mother who read me the three bears, Goldilocks (laughs) and the three bears. You know, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too long, it's too short. But there's something that's just right. And um, um, I developed uh, that one in terms of helping uh, people get through their obstacles. I mean, that is, people would often just repeat the negatives, or they would insist on just saying, you've got to enable me to get to this ideal position. And they would always have this mismatch between what their skill set was, what their toolkit was, and some ambition that they had, or some grievance that they wanted to write. And it just didn't work. They were, it was kind of a misalignment. And so the exercises were how not only to help people conceptualize what would might, what might be a harmony or an alignment of their skills with their goals but also how to learn to think that through for themselves so that everyone let's say when they would finish uh, with a period of psychotherapy they're going to have more stresses and crises in their life they're going to go right back into the human predicament and so the question is could they handle it better so that's why the exercises come out of the exercises that help people master stress. So one of the exercises I call the uh, the five R's, which is you you select something that that is a little upsetting or maybe very upsetting to think about a memory perhaps, maybe a memory where you lapsed. I have a whole chapter on personal lapses in a course in happiness. And then how do you think about that? Well, first you decide to reconsider it in a calm frame of mind, without excessive criticism. And then you kind of try and reperceive what happened. What were the cause and effect sequences? That's the second R: reconsider, reperceive, um, reinterpret. What, what were the other person's intentions? What were your intentions? How did things go haywire? And then revise. So if you could do it all over again, which you will be able to in the future, probably get the same situation in the future. Uh, how can you uh, revise your plan? And then you rehearse that. The rehearsals a uh, part that people often leave out. You have to come to a new intentionality, but you have to really repeat and repeat and repeat that. I guess that would be the sixth R. Uh, and uh, just having those things as, as a guideline, as just a template for thinking through things that are hard to think through, I think helps people slowly, but slowly they change. The second I, and we haven't talked about this, is intimacy. And this is uh, because important, obviously, because this connect- connectedness to other human beings, being having a connection to other human beings is really key to our, our happiness. Um, could you talk about the common fears of intimacy that, are, that you talk about 
in the book? Well, the, um, the commonest ones, not all in one person, but the commonest ones one hear about uh, concern power and control. Mm-hmm. Either um, I will overpower the other person and smother them, and then they won't be very interesting. <laughs> or they'll overpower and smother me, and they'll control me, and I won't be creative or free to do what I want. Um, uh, so issues of uh, being entrapped uh, by one's own love. And then another one is uh, the risks of love, which are very true. If you love someone, you're vulnerable to losing them, really. Um, people exaggerate it, and they're afraid of losing people that they're not likely to lose, but they get rid of the person in order that they don't suffer the passivity of being abandoned. And uh, these attitudes um, about power, control, loss, abandonment um, are often associated with um, problems of anger. I mean, we, r- rightfully, people are running uh, scared of their anger and other people's angers because no relationship can uh, be intimate and enduring and constant without some ambivalence. We don't always want to do what the other person wants us to do, and vice versa. And so it's the learning to tolerate and handle and soften uh, the approach and avoidance that we all feel towards each other. Schopenhauer had this interesting analogy about that people are like porcupines. They, they're very lonely if they're isolated, and they try and get close, and then they stick each other with their quills, <laughs> and then they have to back off. So it's learning how to be intimate, even though a bit of a porcupine uh, that uh, is, is a part of maturity and, and, and learning wisdom. You talk about uh, grievances and the, the problems they, they cause us. Could, could you explain how, how we um, find that path between you know, the extremes of, of avoidance and hostility? Yeah. Well, if you look at the history of religions and spiritual philosophies and philosophy itself, ethics and morality, uh, and even civiliza- civilization in terms of justice, um, people are always uh, trying to curtail what must be within us a natural tendency to feel aggrieved and want some kind of revenge. And um, uh, so all these philosophical approaches um, suggest ways of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is sometimes not psychologically realistic when a person has really been harmed. But we do often exaggerate harms. And learning to review and undo those exaggerations and learning the cost to us of carrying around a a grievance from childhood, like I was never loved enough by my parents, well, who are you going to take that on? Who's going to give you a perfect love now? And uh, who do you want to take it out on? Aren't you impairing your life by, by just having a chip on your shoulder? So it's raising those attitudes from kind of incohate to, to clear in the mind and reviewing them uh, is a way of uh, coming to grips with grievances. So forgive if you can, but uh, in A Course in Happiness, I deal with several other things. When you can't forgive, but how do you go on and pursue your own satisfaction? You talked about uh, lapses in, in, in our principled action, and I thought that this is a very interesting 
um, section because this is where we're forced to kind of look at our, at our own, understand and analyze our own failures, and that's just not easy. No, it's not. Well, I, I deal with the, the chapter on lapses is in the section on intimacy because mm-hmm. it's usually in our taking care of our children, in meeting our work responsibilities, um, and sometimes in having um, in- integrity to our creative ideals that uh, we actually do have times when we don't do it right and where we were selfish and that we weren't responsible and caretaking. And uh, those memories about um, some kind of lapse are, are difficult to consider. And so it's important to um, help the reader, which I try and do in some of the lessons, in terms of seeing a, a future of what you do about it. And what you do about it is not self-flagellation, but it may be realistic acts of remorse or compensation brought into the world. But you can only bring it into the future. You can't bring it into the past. One of the things you also talk about, and I think this is really important because I've found myself in this position, is the difficulty of actually apologizing. Yes, that's where the, the solitude is sometimes helpful because once you've arrived at a plan that maybe an apology is in order, <clears throat> then those three scenarios sometimes help, like, well, what would be a catastrophic apology where it really ends up really badly? And what would be an ideal apology, but you don't want to apologize quite that much? And then what would be a realistic apology? How would you actually word it? And then then practice it and then then do it. But uh, part of the skills I'm trying to help readers develop in themselves is how do you observe how the other person is taking it moment by moment as you actually are apologizing? What are their verbal and nonverbal signals? How do you modify what you're doing in order to authentically try and recreate whatever degree of intimacy you want with that person. Yes, because it seems it's sometimes it's easy to come at somebody apologizing, but in so doing, you know, stick it to them again. And, and, yes. and that's, that's, I think, the, the trick that, that you talk about. That's one of those toxic twins um, because um, when blame is in the air, it's in the air and there's a a part of us that wants the other person to be to blame, even if we're the ones that had a lapse or a goof. And it, you made me do it, is the common expression. And so part of the rehearsal and planning of how to, how to, how to effectively and authentically declare that you want to regain a companionship and a truthfulness and a frankness, part of that is also being ready to uh, curb your excursion into uh, you made me do it, to, uh, to put all the blame on the other person for just a second. Well, let's posit that we're happy. We're, we've got a pretty good grip on things and we're moving forward. But life isn't filled with happiness and it's not filled with ease. And you're going to occasionally come across some, you know, really catastrophic roadblocks. Could you talk about the tools that you have for helping us cope with those kind of problems? Right. I um, take in A Course in Happiness the um, stance that the road to happiness or to being able to pursue happiness effectively is one through the mastery of stress. 
And so in the first, I uh, guess what it is, eight chapters, I'm sort of working up to the ninth chapter, which deals with uh, issues such as disability and death. And um, <clears throat> I've already dealt with some issues like mourning and um, handling grievances and lapses. But those issues, uh, uh, for example, uh, one of the cases is a uh, story of a um, surgeon who develops macular degeneration. And basically, there's no treatment um, for his particular variety of it. He has lost central vision. He can no longer operate. And uh, how he handles that and uh, uh, the grimness and maybe even finality of that situation. But still, his, uh, his excessive despair that he had to be able to operate to be a worthwhile human being, how to address that, how to modify that. Um, so I think the reader is ready by chapter 9 actually to consider issues such as the inevitability of some disability, illness, death in oneself or others. And I, of course, uh, present some of my own sorrows and I think recoveries in the book because I don't have to disguise my own case. <laughs> and then at the end, I uh, take an unusual tactic, which I actually like, which is I save... Um, the 10 things you can do to increase satisfaction to the last chapter because then it's kind of, well, in spite of everything with this, a realistic stance, there's things you can choose from to do that might be more satisfying. And now maybe as you think about that, you can identify some of the habitual obstacles and set them aside and go, uh, go ahead and try something. Yeah, I love the, the, the list of 10 things that to make you happy. It's a really great way to, to end this book. Um, could you talk about uh, about some of these and, and and which ones that you yourself particularly have used? I realized I could do those kind of like uh, the top ten list. <laughs> and so starting with ten, which is I started with first in the chapters, is short order things. And then I end up with um, number one, which is the tenth one in the order of the, the book, which is a, a long order because... Amongst the tools I'm giving in the lessons of the chapters is how do you time frame your thinking? When mm -hmm. do you think about the past? When do you think about the present? When do you think about the future? And how do you connect it? So the, the first one I deal with is the obvious one of uh, enjoy your uh, satisfaction of any safe appetite. Enjoy sensations, whether it's um, um, John Denver, uh, I love the sunlight on my shoulder. In, enjoy it. Um, and then it kind of goes through uh, things such as enjoying your own achievements somewhere in the middle, but also uh, enjoy the achievements of others, which means, of course, getting through the obstacles of envy uh, and being able to enjoy, like, the history of music or the history of poetry. Or um, For me, I love uh, the history of sailing, and I love to sail, so the sensation of wind on my cheek is number one, a very short order pleasure I pursue, and but enjoying the fact that people invented the boat just gives me a certain amount of pleasure. How they, how they figured out how to rig it, and uh, uh, how many words in the language are derived from that. The one that um, listeners might be interested in is the uh, the one I see as the longest range satisfaction uh, at the end of the book is enjoying the flow of generations, knowing about your roots and knowing about your 
offspring or your legacy. It doesn't mean necessarily children and grandchildren, although I get a great deal of satisfaction from ours, but um, uh, it means uh, seeing that your legacy go on. Let's say you've uh, done a garden for the corner of your city and that other people will enjoy it. That's a great sense of pride and self-esteem. and it's, uh, It does no evil. One of the outstanding features of this book are the stories you tell, the the the, the examples you give. It really helps us work through this in a, in a you know ground the more abstract principles. Could you talk about uh, creating those and disguising them and writing them up so that they have that kind of power that they have in the book? I, I knew um, from uh, my experiences in writing other books that uh, would teach psychotherapists that uh, w- without um, a kind of concrete and specific. It, it started here, it went to there. I, in a person, it didn't stick. And so I, I knew I had to have um, effective stories. Just like reading the newspaper, when it may be a profound uh, thing on current history, but it starts with somebody who was there, uh, who had an experience. So um, I... I, uh, the frame of the book was really started with the stories. Also, I, uh, well, just like what I was saying about legacy, I wanted to leave a legacy to my children. They're grown up, but I want them to re- read the book. So I put in a certain amount of autobiographical stuff uh, there. So a number of the stories are about me, and um, um, uh, all the way from... Um, uh, what happened to me when I was eight years old, and uh, to what you mentioned about going to Alaska and, and realizing how important intimacy was to me when I was basically in an isolated uh, position. And uh, then um, uh, I tried to pick stories across the whole lifespan, from young adulthood especially, uh, to uh, people uh, who were retiring or facing end-of-life difficulties. Um, All of them, I think, even though they uh, may bring uh, poignancy and other feelings, even poignant feelings I had writing them about sorrows I've had, still all of them have, like, here's how you can um, go through these passages with courage and stamina and that those are virtues that can be uh, fostered by the kind of exercises uh, given in the book. Marty Horowitz is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California in San Francisco. His new book is A Course in Happiness. Thank you for joining me, Marty. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.